I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Dear brothers, after having repeatedly examined my conscience before God, I have come to the certainty that my strengths, due to an advanced age, are no longer suited to an adequate exercise of the Petrine ministry. I am well aware that this ministry, due to its essential spiritual nature, must be carried out not only with words and deeds, but no less with prayer and suffering. However, in today's world, subject to so many rapid changes and shaken by questions of deep relevance for the life of faith, in order to govern the bark of St. Peter and proclaim the gospel, strength of both mind and body are necessary, strength which in the last few months has deteriorated in me to the extent that I have had to recognize my incapacity to fulfill adequately the ministry entrusted to me. Last Friday, when we spoke about the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday, two days ago, who could have anticipated that Pope Benedict XVI would be performing one of his last public duties on that very day, having taken the secular and religious world by storm by announcing his resignation on Monday? By now, his life and career have been parsed and analysed by all and sundry. But here on The God Slot, we'll spend this week's programme hearing about various aspects of his papacy from some voices that you may not have heard yet, either on radio or television. We're joined in studio by Dr Jim Corkery, SJ, who's recognised as one of the foremost interpreters of Benedict's thought in the English-speaking world. He's the author of Joseph Ratzinger's Theological Ideas. And I'm delighted to welcome him to studio. We also welcome Dr Andrew Pearce from the Irish School of Ecumenics at Trinity College Dublin and Irish Catholic journalist Sarah Carey. Throughout the programme we'll also have comments from historian and author Professor Eamon Duffy, Benedictine nun and lecturer on women's affairs Sister Joan Chittister and former Chief Rabbi of Ireland and Papal Knight Dr David Rosen from Israel. Could I put to you all as an opening question, Pope John Paul II, when it was suggested that he resign because of ill health, both mental and physical, said that as Jesus didn't come down from the cross, neither could he give up the burden of office. Yet Pope Benedict, who's still quite sound in mind and body, anticipates mental and physical frailty and resigns. They can't both be right, can they? Jim, can we come to you first? Well, from the beginning of his papacy, Pope Benedict more or less let it be known that he thought that the office would have to be given up, would even be an obligation, he said in 2010, five years later, if he didn't have the strength to continue it. It's not nothing. It's not just an office where you can sit there and be there. It was quite interesting that in the announcement of his resignation, he moved from talking about it being a spiritual office to also talking about the complexity of today's world. And he linked that, I think, to strengths that he would need to have, maybe wiliness that he would need to have, that he knows he doesn't have, 
with diminishing energy. So from the beginning, he was different to John Paul II on this. They can't both be right, you say. Well, it's not a matter of absolute fact, but a matter of, uh, of how you see things. And popes have resigned before, so there is a precedent. The main word that was used on Monday when the announcement came was courageous. A lot of people felt it was a very courageous decision. Would you think that, Sarah? Oh, definitely, because, you know, Jim is saying there were precedents, but they were a very, very long time ago. And I think when you had the precedent of Pope John Paul and the inspiration that he gave to the sick and the dying, you know, a lot of people were really moved by that. Um, So and it might have seemed, you know, that he was almost accusing John Paul of being wrong for doing that. So it was a very brave thing to do. Um, But I think it was a very important thing to do because um, I think it's important to show people that once you have power, it's really important to know when is the right time to walk away from it. Um, so I think by doing something quite different, he's giving a different kind of inspiration to rulers and leaders in all kinds of organisations and religions throughout the world. And Dr Andrew Pierce, Both both men are very different. So it's not a case of one being right and the other being wrong. They're, they're both entirely different in their approaches to the, the ministry of, of the Bishop of Rome. Um, I think one of the things that is interesting is that it's a two-way learning process whilst the, the the world, as it were, was quite entranced by his decision to step aside. It's it's also a world in which we, we have this expectation that, that very high office is not held interminably. And I think that was one of the, the points that was, was made in his uh, speech when he stepped down. What was, and as Jim has picked this up, that there is a, an acknowledgement of the distinctiveness of spiritual leadership. But then towards the end, we're moving into a discussion of the kinds of competencies that are required to exercise that. Certainly last year with uh, the release of the book that had Paolo Gabrielli, the papers being stolen from the Vatican, there was a sense that he wasn't in control anymore, that other people were running the thing. I had that sense too. Um, I think he felt betrayed, was very disappointed. But also he wouldn't have expected... Uh, those sorts of things to be going on. In a way, he's too trusting of the people who are around him. And the danger then when somebody's getting old is that in addition to being trusting, they have to trust more because they haven't the energy to follow everything through. I mean, there were gaffes earlier on with regard to the use of the internet or the insufficient use of it to find out certain things about, for example, Archbishop Williamson. And so he has suffered from not being so modern and his office maybe not always being so efficient or other people having too much power in it. And I think that took its toll. I mean, I can, uh, when you played at the beginning there the resignation announcement, I have been listening to this voice for 30 years. It is no longer strong. It is weary. It is tired. And whatever else one can say about him, he has certainly worked hard. Enough is enough. Okay, well, let's go back to 2005. When he was elected, many people thought it would be a caretaker papacy and not quite eight years. But let's go back now to 2005. I went down to St. Peter's Square for the announcement and was surrounded by conservative American Catholics who were delirious with joy, uh, which had a slightly depressing effect on me, I think. Um, I I suppose I was apprehensive that uh, there would be a very strong... Um, conservative reaction in the wake of the election. That turned out not to be true, though I think long-term the effect of the pontificate has been in that direction. Uh, 
So I think I was initially disappointed. I, I was fearful that the church uh, would now be subject more to doctrinal definitions than discipleship, that somehow or other it signaled a reversion to um, a religion of from my childhood. Initially, some surprise, because I was not anticipating that the cardinals would elect another conservative, and I thought that their perception would be that in the interest of the church they would go in a more liberal direction. Uh, on the other hand, I knew that from a, a more narrow perspective in terms of the Catholic-Jewish relationship, this was a very positive step and a very uh, helpful appointment because I knew of Cardinal Ratzinger's commitment and I'd had a, already a friendship with him for some 20 years beforehand. There you heard Professor Eamon Duffy, Sister Joan Chittester and Rabbi David Rosen giving their reactions to Pope Benedict's election almost eight years ago. How did you three react? Andrew, maybe first, Andrew Pearce. Um, I don't think I was particularly surprised, uh, as some were, and I think we, we sat back with some interest to see where this would go. Um, we, we've had the experience in the past of somebody being appointed to an allegedly caretaker role and, and turning everything on its head in, in John the Twenty Third. <clears throat> now, I don't think we expected anything like that to happen. I think the other thing that was a major feature of it was simply the age factor, that at the age of, of uh, 78, he was uh, quite a, an elderly man taking on an enormous job and the, the, some of the, the more apocalyptic fears of his papacy seemed to be uh, rather overstated. Jim Corkery, how did you react? Um, I reacted uncharacteristically. At least my friends would say I lapsed into silence. I didn't know <laughs> what to say. For 20 minutes, hardly a word came out of my mouth. Were you surprised? Very. Um, I didn't think they'd elect somebody so old. I thought that they would go for a candidate younger, that liberals and conservatives could kind of agree on. I simply thought he didn't figure because he was past the age when bishops hand in their retirement. He was already 78. So I was quite surprised, a little shocked. And um, I prefer a theologian who has a more um, affectionate take on the world, who likes the world more, who isn't so critical of it. Sure, discerns the evil in it and makes sure to make careful distinctions about what's good and what's not. But he's not so pessimistic as he had often been in statements that he had made and in a kind of an Augustinian outlook on the world that he had. So I was disappointed and I was shocked because of the age. And how do you feel now, eight years later? Um, I feel that the last couple of years have been hard on him and things have occurred which have made the papacy appear in a less favourable light. So if he had done five years, I think... If he had done five years and resigned, the act of resigning being so courageous and so unusual, that there would be a better assessment of his papacy. Um, I think that a particular theological line, also favoured by John Paul II, a particular kind of interpretation of Vatican II, has for 34 years between these two papacies um, dominated increasingly, not only in things that they have said and written, but also in the appointment of bishops. 67 of the cardinals who will elect the next pope have been appointed by this pope, and I don't think there are any who weren't appointed by the last pope. Joseph Ratzinger himself was appointed by Paul VI, but I think he might be the last one, or he's one of the last, certainly. 
So um, I didn't wish for the continuation of that theological line, that take on the world, that take on Vatican II. And so I'm hopeful that while all of that is there, that the future will bring perhaps a new way of seeing things. Okay, we'll come back to that later. Sarah, how did you react to uh, Pope Benedict's election? First of all, I'd I'd really like to say that while I'm right for the Irish Catholic, I really come to this whole issue just as, you know, an ordinary person who goes to Mass and I'm not in any way, you know, a theologian or keep up with Vatican politics or anything like that. So my image of him very much was the one that I had learned of through the media, which was of this hard line, you know, the German personality and uh, the Ratzinger and, uh, you know, all of that. And um, so I was aghast. I thought, oh my God, they've hired this, you know, conservative hardline guy and this won't be good at all. Once he was elected, I was actually quite struck by how gentle his person Personality appeared to be in contrast to his reputation. Um, he genuinely seemed like a very gentle person, very uh, smiling person and much warmer uh, than you thought. So I did warm to him personally over the years. Um, but I suppose he could never avoid the fact that um, he was what he was. He was an academic um, he was a theologian and um, and very little, in fact, probably nearly no experience of ordinary pastoral work. And I think that was very hard um, on the kind of normal congregation in that it seemed so distant, his experience seemed so distant from the community church and, and pastoral work and the things that go on amongst his flock. So um, so that kind of saddened me a little bit to see, um, you know, the Western media in particular turn against him because, well, they were always against him, but they never warmed to him because he just seemed to have this distance from the ordinary lived experience of the ordinary members of his congregation. Well, he had the nickname when he was prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith as God's Rottweiler. Let's discuss now whether that continued into his papacy and let's hear from our other contributors first. Most people would say that they were uh, pleasantly surprised if they'd been apprehensive uh, that at the man's personal gentleness, courtesy and uh, quiet presence. And for many people I think that quiet presence was a bit of a relief after the um, mega personality of the previous pope uh, that uh, it was in some ways after a long uh, celebrity style pontificate to have a pope who was more like the popes of the first half of the 20th century in personal manner and where uh, the the impact didn't depend so much on uh, charisma. That was Eamon Duffy taking up in one sense, Sarah, your point about that he was a gentleman, but also making the point he was so different from John Paul II. Was that a good thing at the time, Jim? Ah, yes, I think so. And I warmed to it too. I mean, he's a kind of private person, shy. He could never march around the stage dragging a microphone and wowing a crowd. He's just not able to do that. And um, I think it was time for a change of style. The current Archbishop of New York, Timothy Dolan, people talk about now, he was the Archbishop of Milwaukee and he once said about John Paul II, quoting somebody else, he said, they say people like the singer but don't like the song. And I think that was a danger of his papacy, that he could wow a crowd. He got the young people here to dance for 14 minutes but not to dance to his tune. And this next Pope... He didn't have any of that at his fingertips. He he couldn't be a superstar. 
And people began to listen to his, in fact, for all his academic background, more simple uh, teachings, especially on Wednesdays, for example, his more easy-to-read encyclicals, and also doing interesting new things like quoting secular philosophers, people like Nietzsche. They were never quoted in an encyclical before. In many ways, he did things differently. The style was low-key. He actually dampened down the applause when it got too strong. Um, but it was a distinctive style, and I think uh, it had its merits. Andrew Pierce, I think when you get talking about him as, as God's Rottweiler or whatever his, his nickname was at the time, he, there are three elements in terms of making an assessment, I think, of, of, of the Ratzinger Benedict years. One is to do with the, the legacy of Vatican II and his role in what one author has called the battle for meaning of, of Vatican II. And, and he's played an influential role in that battle, both uh, as, as, as prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and uh, as Pope. I think the second then is this connection really between John Paul and himself, that he, he was a very important lieutenant to, to, to John Paul, and yet there's very clear distinctions between them, not only at the level of personality, but in terms of the way they, they thought and the way they view the world. There's, you know, there, there's, there are similar things. And then I think there's a, there's a broader significance of his, own, of his own pontificate, which also picks up the other, the other two. Um, he's a very... Uh, there's, there's a great deal of ambiguity, I think, in, in looking at the, at the God, God's Rottweiler years because it's a very bleak time in a sense. I mean, he, he, he came to Rome as, as, as somebody who regarded some of the, the Roman actions in the, in the early part of the 20th century as, as really very unacceptable and tampering with academic freedom. And yet the role of CDF under his watch it is one of the, the sort of the negative marks on, on, on his on his score sheet. And it's balanced, I suppose, by the fact that somebody like um, when Edward Schielewicz was undergoing examination, he, he considered that, that, that Ratzinger treated him with absolute courtesy. Um, and yet Bernard Herring, the, the distinguished moral theologian, said that he was interviewed twice in his life, once by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and, and once by the Gestapo, and he much preferred the Gestapo. That, that, that's a terrible, terrible legacy within a, a church body concerned with, 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 with truth and justice. Now, Vatican II has been mentioned a couple of times, and we had the 50th anniversary of the beginning of Vatican II, and a lot of talk about it, so we're kind of at a crossroads again. What happens next is going to be very interesting, isn't it? Well, in terms of who will be the next pope, of course, and what emphases the pope will set which might be different from those of John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger. Um, the people who look at Vatican II a bit differently emphasize also the way it was church, the fact that it used horizontal language, as Father John O'Malley says, dialogue, reciprocity, mutuality, the church learning from the world, the church teaching in the world. There was an atmosphere of all of the people of God together, everybody equal in baptism. The hierarchical nature of the church wasn't lost, but it found its due place. The event of Vatican II is said by many, and even the spirit of Vatican II, to be as important as the letter contained in the texts. But the John Paul Ratzinger era increasingly drew us back to the texts only. So I think a lot depends on what happens, as you say, Eileen, in the future, but it depends too on how those who will now draw on Vatican II, everybody agrees that Vatican II is the answer, but they draw different answers from it. So that's going to be interesting.
Sarah, have you have you on that? Um, well, I, I suppose for me, as I say, just, you know, someone who is an ordinary kind of member of the church, the issue issue of the liturgy is the one that really affected, you know, uh, mass scores uh, the most. And there was a letter in the Irish Times during the week actually saying, well, now that she's gone, could we have our old responses back, please? And I often I, I have sympathy with um, uh, the church when they come under pressure to change their teachings and make them more liberal in order to attract more people in. And I, I have sympathy with the issue that, no, if you believe in a certain truth, you should keep that truth. But why alienate the people who are in the church and who are going there every week? And when you've got half the congregation saying, and also with you and the other half saying, I'm with your spirit, it seems to me completely unnecessary to um, to confuse the converted and the people who are trying to do their best. Um, I presume there'll be no rowing back on it. You know, why why change again? Um, but uh, I was, I, I thought that was a rather pointless um gesture and, and and just made life more difficult for the people, you know, who were already on your side. Jim Corkery, do you have a view on that? Because it was actually returning the liturgy to a more direct translation, if you like. Yes, a more literal translation of the Latin. I think it may not be the last word. I mean, I think it's very important how this is received in the church. It isn't fixed and final that if people trying to pray the liturgy in this language really find that it keeps jarring that they can't say something respectfully but honestly and perhaps the matter can be looked at again the process whereby it arrived in our churches was not very consultative and I personally find the language um, apart from the fact that sometimes you get lost in certain prayers, you get into them and you can't get out of them because they are a literal translation and adequate attention isn't paid to how the English should be. But the deeper thing is, is they bespeak a spirituality, an attitude towards God, a way of seeing God, which I think is too groveling. Uh, Elements of even fear. Yes, awe before God is good, but awe and affection can go together. God has come close to us in a baby so that we would be sure not to be frightened off. But the language is sometimes a language of people who are expected to be a little frightened off. It's inculcating a different spirituality into people, and I'm not sure that's so good. Andrew, do you have a view on that? I think it's something that all the churches have been struggling with at the end of the 20th into the 21st century of of how do you renew liturgy. And I suppose it's one of the the strange things, again, of of Benedict is that he's somebody who who cares a great deal about liturgical worship. And and certainly there was a a great change in tempo liturgically between the the, the rather more... um, papal-centred liturgies of John Paul and the wider concern of liturgy under, under, under Benedict. But I think both in terms of the ownership of the process by which the text came into being and in, in terms of, well, we, we've ended up with a very clunky liturgy. I mean, one of the best tests of whether a liturgy works is whether the celebrant and the people can remember it yeah. and can pick up and follow where they are. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you keep needing to check the guidebook, it's, it's not working. 
We had one uh, funny incident last Easter on Holy Thursday and after uh, the readings, everybody automatically um, kicked into saying the creed. We believe in God, blah, 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 blah. And then after three lines, we kind of looked down at the leaflet to go any further. And then, of course, there was that line in red. The creed is not said on Holy Thursday. So it hadn't been published. No one could say the creed. We all just faded away. And I, th- I really just thought... Oh, now, come on, if this is your legacy to the church, this is not good if people can't even say one of the core prayers anymore. So and, and I really do think that is a factor that I was mentioning earlier of the fact that, um, you know, he wasn't a, a priest as such. He wasn't in a community. And I think he just had no idea of the, the normal experience of, of, of his own priests and, and his own people. And that sense of distance um, I think was very apparent um, during his legacy, even if all his intentions were good and all of that. Um, that sense of distance from people was a problem. I think one thing that, that struck me, a documentary that was done just before he visited England, he was very lonely in Rome. They interviewed his brother and a childhood friend, Margareta, in Germany, that he was constantly phoning home. He was constantly looking for people to come and visit him in Rome. So it was a two way thing, I think. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it was. And and maybe that is a function, you know, of the way the church is working. And one of the things that they need to recognise that, um, you know, remember the humanity and the normal family experience of normal people. Um, And maybe that's something that he realised. But now I don't know much about um, his private life or his um, any that side of him. Maybe Jim does. uh, I welcome what Eileen says, you know, that I mean, these are terrible jobs. And I also think that the jobs of bishops, they're so lone. They carry so much with so little support. Um, I think that you're right. Benedict is not a demonstrative person, but he is a person of intimacy. And family has always been important to him and close friends. I think he was lonely. And he also wasn't among the cardinals ever what I might call one of the boys. (laughs) He arrived in Rome as a cardinal. He had very high status from the moment he came in, so he didn't need to jostle for power or position. And over the years, he sat on six to eight Vatican congregations. He had enormous stature from the jobs and the positions that he had. But it doesn't mean that he uh, wasn't lonely. I'd be very concerned about that, and I'd even be concerned about the way in which the institutional church, you know, the hierarchical church, is structured. How much support does it give people who need warmth and, you know, the kinds of things that we all need in their lives in order to be able to dole it out to. He was a person of immense duty, and even if it meant a lot of suffering, he would endure it. And I think it did. I mean, he certainly has to get top marks for doing what he did for 86 years. But um, there were deprivations, yeah. It's it's part of the territory, but need it be? Well. <clears throat> That's a whole other question, Andrew. You know, it's a strange thing that one of the commentators uh, in, in recent days said that there's been an expectation, a fairly recent expectation through the through the last century or so, that that, that, that popes are are expected to be to be saints. Um, and by saint, I think they mean somewhat superhuman, or, or possibly less than human, in, in their the comforts to which they are entitled. They're expected to be models of of utter piety, utter devotion, utter selflessness, and it's it's something that possibly we need to look at because the commentator who said we're, we're incorrect to expect saints was saying we're, we're actually looking for, for a bishop of Rome uh, as, a, as opposed to somebody who will simply sit there and either suffer or who will do all these things that uh, no other human being could be asked possibly to do in human terms. 
The other thing that struck me, Father Lombardi announced during the week that he'll no longer be infallible after the 28th of February. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the infallibility of a Pope is quite limited anyway, as you know. I mean, neither this Pope nor the last Pope nor the one before him invoked that special uh, um, charism, gift of infallibility that that has been exercised, in fact, I think only twice. Isn't that right? There is an infallibility of the Pope teaching together with the bishops and the the church in a council, for example. Um, But infallibility, we often think nowadays, because the Pope talks so much, that, and it's all relayed to us immediately, and we find everything on Vatican.va, we think that everything he says, or the impression is given that everything that he says is infallible. But most of it, of course, thank God, is not. Thank God for him, and thank God for the rest of us. <laughs> OK, let's come to our next subject now, ecumenism, and this was one of the priorities of his papacy. After Dominus Jesus, he published an article in Osservatore Romano called Our Father Abraham, to make it clear that he saw the relationship between the church and the Jewish people as being one of a unique character, in that sense reiterating what John Paul II had said, and therefore did not see it within the context of the others whom he was dressing within the framework of Dominus Jesus, and doesn't see the relationship with the Jewish people as being if you like, problematic as he sees it in relation to the Muslim world because he sees Judaism in keeping with Vatican II as the fundamental, essential, integral roots of the Christian faith and that, therefore, as he has said, reiterating John Paul II, the Church has a relationship with the Jewish people that is like no other. David Rosen on Benedict the Ecumenist with particular reference to the Jewish people. Andrew Pierce, this is your area of expertise, so we'll come to you first. There was more to Benedict's ecumenism than the relationship with the Jews, though. There was a great deal. Um, like his predecessor, uh, John Paul, he, he seemed to have a, a greater ecumenical interest in the churches of the East than of the West. He seemed quite pessimistic uh, about the possibilities of union uh, with with the churches in in the West, um, I, I suppose there's a couple of ingredients in trying to sort of put together some sort of balance sheet for for, for Benedict in ecumenical terms. Uh, he th- th- there are certain things that we will always be intrigued by. For example, his his colleague in Germany, Karl Rahner, uh, along with another man called Heinrich Fries, wrote a book called uh, Christian Unity: An Actual Possibility. And what they put forward there was really the churches by which they meant really the churches in the West, the mainstream churches now agree on so much that a lot of the the grounds for disagreement are are, are spurious, that there is much more possibility for actual unity uh, than not. Uh, And Ratzinger seemed to respond to that as though it was some kind of strange joke, uh, that that this was, that that level of of consensus that seemed to mean such a lot to, to Rahner Meant, meant remarkably little to, to, to Ratzinger. And I think in that disagreement between them, we see the beginnings of what would become a major thing for Ratzinger, his fear of relativism. I mean, that, that has been a, a sort of the, the, the bogeyman that keeps him awake at night, uh, is the threat posed by, by relativism. And that has, has woven its way into some of the key pronouncements when he was in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, for example, the the, letter, the declaration Dominus Jesus was produced, which I think was quite a, quite a regrettable document in many ways. Now, 
I, I say that and immediately have to stand back and say, well, most other churches have their own versions of Dominus Jesus in which they also say that other churches are less than really what, what we are. Um, but it was an unfortunate step backwards because it seemed to many readers of it that some of the, the clear ecumenical advances marked in Vatican II, w- we were now taking a step away from those uh, in, in terms of understanding the Catholicity of the Church uh, and uh, his his fear of of relativism crept in there. I think more recently his he's undertaken a couple of ecumenical endeavours. One in relation to Anglicans, the the ordinariate in which Anglicans have been able to mostly traditionalist Anglicans who are unhappy with liberal reforms in their own traditions have been able to to move as parishes or maybe as dioceses or as individuals to. Rome, whilst maintaining distinctively Anglican uh, uh, ideas uh, and practices, that did not go down well ecumenically. And at the minute, there's currently talk of a Lutheran ordinariate because Archbishop Muller has given a, a very positive appraisal of the good things that the ordinariate brought. But it certainly chilled the ecumenical atmosphere. Jim, I saw you nodding your head there throughout Andrew's contribution. <laughs> what do you yeah, want to add to that um, on Benedict the Ecumenist? Nodding it more or less affirmatively. I agree with uh, most of what Andrew said. He was always cautious. And that would be the difference between Ranner and Fries and, and he, for example. They'd have had more an emphasis on what is possible through what we agree on. But Joseph Ratzinger always made distinctions and was always cautious. It's interesting um, for people to know that already in 1966, one year after the council, there were three areas in which he was worried that the reform train was going too fast. Uh, Liturgy, the church's relationship with the world, and the third area was ecumenism. People wanted too much, too quickly, he said, and they needed to take steps carefully. There's always been that tendency in him. And as Andrew says, later when he began to worry in the interreligious dialogue and in the dialogue with the churches, when he began to worry that um, Christ would be decentered and the Catholic Church would be decentered, he spoke about relativism in relation to the Catholic faith and to Christ. And that also led him to be more careful and cautious about uh, reaching out ecumenically. Sarah? Um, well, I agree with Andrew's point on the ordinariate. It seemed to me that that wouldn't uh, be very warming at all uh, to the Anglican Church. Um, two incidents um, I know of, uh, one was in relation to uh, Judaism and the other Islam. You remember there was the huge row when um, he, he published a paper in which he said or was reported to have said that um, in Islam you would only find things that were inhuman and evil or something like that. It seemed really, really harsh. Huge outcry, lots of hysteria. Oh my God, he's saying this about Islam. And of course then when you looked a little bit further into it, he was quoting some Mm. medieval scholar. And I think that was typical of the scrapes that he got himself into where um, he was saying something more nuanced uh, than appeared. But by the time the confusion was cleared up, it was too late. The damage had been done. 
done offence had been taken and um, it was probably a pity that he fell into uh, the, that kind of trap and then in relation to Judaism um, by allowing the Tridentine Mass to be said um, more easily I, I think there was some offence taken because there's a line in that about how uh, oh, the veil must be lifted from the Jewish eyes or, or something like that so um, so he did get caught out there too in, in relation to the other you know, monotheistic religions. Well, the one issue that probably dominated the papacy was clerical child abuse scandals, with our own Taoiseach, of course, making an impassioned and very critical speech about the Vatican's handling of the issues. And some would say, although the official reason is different, giving rise to the closure of Ireland's embassy to the Holy See. Here's Joan Chittister again. It took a long time to really get his attention, and yet I believe history will show that when he insisted that all those cases, those pedophilia cases, be sent directly to his desk when he was um, in the congregation on the doctrine of faith, I think he meant to get a hand on that. I think he got overwhelmed by the numbers and then hoped that it could be handled on these lower levels and trying to handle it on the lower level just made it worse and worse and worse. So um, we haven't, I don't think we've we've had seen really strong leadership there. But uh, again, he's in the middle. He's someplace in a, in a murky middle. Isn't that the thing that he actually knew more about clerical child abuse than anybody else because he wrote to all the bishops in 2001 and got them to send in these reports of what were what was happening in their own diocese. So in that sense, he was on top of it. But the perception was very different, Jim. Yeah, the early 2000s um, marked a change in him. Before that, he would have had similar a similar mentality, I think, uh, not enlightened mentality, that was found also in many bishops and church leaders and in leaders in religious orders as well with regard to this. But he really did try to get a handle on it. And Joan Chittister is fair and I think accurate when she says that he worked hard to to deal with the dimensions of it. But they proved overwhelming. When all the cases began to pour into the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, nobody could have imagined the extent. It seemed, first of all, it was an Anglophone problem. They even thought just an Irish problem. Gradually it emerged that it's a much broader problem and indeed maybe more broad still than we have fully realised. So um, she says he ended up in the middle, the murky middle. To some extent that is true. Um, There hasn't been an effective handling of it yet really. The problem goes on and the matter of handling it is still um, less than satisfactory. So... I would think I would not have as negative assessment of him as some people in its regard. I think he really tried, um, but I think it's a huge problem, and I think that he succeeded only to an extent. And there was great disappointment here, Sarah, when the letter to the Irish Catholics came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, and uh, you see, I, I really sympathise, you know, with Joan Chester's um, view in that. He he did some good, you know, and there was the case of the Mexican priest. Was it Matziel was his name? And, you know, he was trying to investigate him. And Pope John Paul II put the brakes on that and stopped him. And the minute he got into the papacy, he resumed that investigation. So on the one hand, you do see this evidence that he was trying. On the other hand, 
Cardinal Bernard Law, like why was he kind of rescued from the mess of Boston? And why is he still prominent in the past week in, in all these ceremonies? And there does seem to be this equivocation on some points. And I think for me, I was never quite clear. And maybe that's my fault and my understanding of where he stood that while he was keen that canon law be um, implemented and that um, these priests be you know, disciplined or expelled or whatever. There seems to be confusion about, um, you know, the obligation to report to, to civil authority. And and I think there seems to be this, you know, disdain uh, for, um, you know, civil law in all the different countries. And I think that's what we picked up here in Ireland, that, well, you know, he was in control, he was in charge, he'd do what he could in his own way, but this lack of cooperation with governments... Um, you know, really left a bad taste in people's mouths. And he also seemed to focus in that letter on reorganising the church in Ireland rather than focusing on the victims. Andrew? I think that's been a problem in a sense, is how do you reorganise in the light of something like this? It's such a vast, vast problem. And what are you reorganising to achieve? Because so many of the initiatives we've heard announced seem to be circling the wagons. The problem is, is a more broader ecumenical problem in relation to abuse that it's not just the Catholic Church, it's not just Ireland, but it's the kind of church then that you're seeking to to see emerge from it. And how deep are you going to go with your criticisms? If you're trying to protect a rather clericalized view of the church, that, that bespeaks a certain kind of organization that you're going to go with. And what I think we saw in the letter to Ireland was a kind of a, a tightening of control in certain areas, together with this rather strange pietistic note at the end. And I think that goes back to something that, that Jim has said, that there is, in Benedict's overall vision, um, you know, there's the, the, the classical head, head wrecker in, in, in the church has always been, how do you relate nature and grace? And there are some who see these more in, in, in either or, and some who see them in both and. And, and Benedict seems paradoxically to be in, in the either or camp very often. And his church seems to become a, a holy elect um, and I'm not sure that's a very healthy and wise way of looking at it. I'm not sure that the kind of spirituality that that might generate is is the kind of spirituality that, that the Irish church needed to be challenged to, to move towards. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about and discuss, but time is catching up with us. We need to look now at what the Pope's possible legacy will be. It's very clear that the most obvious dimension of Benedict's legacy even before he was Pope, was the preservation of, if you like, Catholic orthodoxy and the protection of that in the face of um, a relativist modern world where things change with enormous rapidity. From that point of view, I think he would have seen his pontificate as successful. The question of um, Benedict... 16th legacy is the most difficult one of all to answer, you see, because every on every other question, he falls someplace between. So maybe his legacy uh, is simply that uh, he, he may not have led what he should have, but he didn't destroy what he could have. Every pope's most important legacy, if the pontificate lasts any length of time, are the appointments he makes. And I think his own conservative instincts there uh, mean that um, in a way that's I think carried over from the previous pontificate there are some deeply disappointing 
developments there in terms of appointment. Rabbi David Rosen, Sister Joan Chittister and Professor Eamon Duffy sharing their thoughts on what the legacy of Pope Benedict might be. Jim, that's what Eamon Duffy said there about the appointments. That's something that you were talking about earlier. Yes, um, because the appointments go together with the theological vision. Increasingly, if you trace back the appointments of the bishops, you'll see that they represent the side, the way of seeing things theologically, that was typical of Joseph Ratzinger. And he appointed 67 of them. That's over half of those who will elect his successor. So I think theology can be up for conversation, but when it resides also in people who have power and rule, then it has too much power. And so that is his legacy in a way. It's a theological legacy, but enshrined in people in the church who actually have great power to influence how people think and and to tell them how they should think. Um, the liturgy, that's part of the legacy then too, and I'm not so happy with it as I said earlier. There are other things that I find positive. For example, I think the style. It's much better that a pope isn't a superstar. Um, superstar behavior is reason bypassing. At least with Benedict, you could engage your reason with what he was saying. Um, it wasn't a matter of slogans. So I think the style was hugely important, and it was a humble style too. The legacy with regard to women could be better. They're not visible in his entourage, they're not visible in his writings, and they're not visible in the liturgical language. Um, there's a certain legacy in this pope also as a modernizer because of the decision to resign because of his use of secular thinkers in his papal reflections, even in encyclicals. I think that was good. That was a curiously positive engaging of the church with the world, reason with faith. So you can see these positive elements that are there. Of course, it'll take us 20 years to assess mm -hmm. the legacy. And he's going to continue to write the encyclical on faith. They say won't be out by the time he resigns, but it will mm. come. I said at the beginning of his papacy, and I have great understanding for this, since it's my own work too, he's basically a professor, a mm -hmm. teacher, a student actually. He likes to study. I said at that time that he was a professor with an eye for precision and a practical touch. And I think he'll go back uh, to prayer and study and I hope he gets a few years of it. Sarah, we didn't really get to discuss the role of women and, and what happened yeah. to women during the papacy. But what do you think his legacy will be? Well, I think that the political issue that's been mentioned, the conservatism, the orthodoxy and the fact that he got to make all those appointments. So even, you know, when he goes, those are the guys who are still going to be making uh, the decisions. Um, you know, that that's a definite. Um, I'm always hopeful, perhaps naively, um, and I'm hoping that there'll be some kind of counter legacy in that whoever comes in next will see that the lack of compassion uh, for human nature and, you know, the regular sinners who cannot possibly live up to all these ideals. You know, things like that, OK, preaching abstinence uh, from sex in Africa is probably, you know, the right thing. And yet... The condoms are what's going to actually save lives that whoever comes in will see you've got to try and and relate to how people are actually living their lives. And, you know, less judgment and more compassion is what's needed and stop alienating the people who are actually trying. Andrew. 
I think one of the, the there's two things I think I'd say by way of legacy uh, in, in relation to Benedict. The first is you know when you when you try and look back over his work, both particularly as Pope, but also in, in CDF, the fixation he had with trying to overcome the breach with the traditionalists who couldn't cope with Vatican II. I mean, it, 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 it led to that extraordinary own goal, in a sense, with, with, with Bishop Williamson. Um, but that was a major issue for him. And around it gather so many of the issues we've already touched on, in a sense, the, the rather clericalist priesthood, the exclusion of women, a rather ambivalent attitude towards how you relate tradition and modernity. And I think so much that, that, that is sort of, in a sense, problematic in his, some of his pronouncements around, later pronouncements around uh, Judaism, will will be found there uh, in a sense that he was trying to get overcome that breach within the church which he had been intimately involved in negotiating the the overcoming of it at one stage so i think that becomes a sort of a symbolic issue of 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 the traditionalists and how do you try and retain their affection within the church that i think is 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 something that cast its shadow around other things that he did and and secondly i think I remember when, when the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission met in Dublin, it was the Arctic too, uh, there was a very grumpy sermon preached by Henry McAdoo, who chaired Arctic One, uh, who, who pretty much said, look, you've said your churches are going in this direction and you've begun moving in that direction and, and now you're coming up with a, a multiplicity of minor difficulties that you know, c- keep keep multiplying by themselves to stop your going in the direction you said you're going, people will, in good conscience, make decisions and will opt out of the institutions that are not moving. And I think that becomes the interesting thing for his successor as to people who are, in Germany particularly, but elsewhere, opting out of their uh, affection and allegiance to the Catholic Church are doing so because their, 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 their ethic and their ethos has been informed by by a very deep sense of what is important in Catholic Christianity. And there needs to be now an effort to woo them as much as the traditionalists, because that, in a sense, you know, if, if we do think that, that grace has a way of interacting positively with nature, then we need to be listening for the echo from, from the people who are moving away and, and following that up, I think. Andrew Pierce, we leave you the final word. Thank you indeed for that, Dr. Jim Corkery too, and journalist Sarah Carey. And thanks also to our contributors, Eamon Duffy, Dr. David Rosen and Sister Joan Chichester for their comments. That's our programme for this week. No doubt during the coming weeks we'll be returning to this subject again. We'll be making an extended edition of this programme available to you on podcast. As usual your comments are welcome. The email address is godslot at rte.ie Our phone number 01208 and our postal address is the godslot rte radio 1 Dublin 4. Until next Friday evening at the same time, Gugudi Jishif.